This is Radio Health Journal. I'm Reed Pence. This week, a new field of science, planetary health. Conservation and biodiversity loss and climate change can really no longer be separated from the field of public health and thinking about the health and well-being of all the people on the planet. Connections that most people never see when Radio Health Journal returns. I'm Nancy Benson, host of Radio Health Journal. If you enjoy listening to Radio Health Journal, you'll also like our sister show, Viewpoints, which covers a wide array of topics from education to history to the environment. Here's a preview of what they're covering this week on Viewpoints. There's things like candy shoots where you can, you know, send the candy down to the end of the driveway. What are your Halloween plans this year? Then we have some people who come in and plan when they're 30. And we have some people who come in and plan when they're 55 and thinking about retirement. And then I have some ladies who come in at 85 and say, we think we ought to start thinking about it. Understanding a process that we all one day will face. I'm Marty Peterson. And I'm Gary Price. These stories in depth this week on your public affairs magazine, Viewpoints. Listen to Viewpoints on your favorite radio station and subscribe and listen to shows anytime on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. There are still more than two months left in 2020, and millions of us can't wait for it to be over. Memes are all over social media about just how bad a year it's been starting with COVID-19. But there have also been hurricanes, wildfires, and droughts. And if it seems like Mother Nature is getting back at us, you may not be far from the truth, at least in the estimation of those practicing a new field of science, planetary health. Planetary health is a way of thinking about health and well-being that includes both people and the planet. The notion is that you can't have healthy people without a healthy planet, And we need to value both things because we can't have one without the other. That's Dr. Howard Frumkin, Emeritus Professor of Environmental and Occupational Health Sciences at the University of Washington School of Public Health. He's also co-editor of the new book, Planetary Health, Protecting Nature to Protect Ourselves. He says planetary health includes a lot more than sciences that have been around for more than 50 years, like environmental science and ecology. Standard environmental health, uh, that's a field that I grew up with, was mostly about toxic chemicals, radiation, air pollution, things you can measure readily and correlate with the impacts they have on people's health. Planetary health takes a broader approach, almost ecological thinking. We think in complex systems. So you've got temperatures rising, you've got biodiversity falling, you've got phosphorus and nitrogen cycles changing on a global scale, you've got the chemistry of the oceans changing. All of those things interact with each other. All of those interactions have impacts on human health and well-being. Planetary health is this very recently emerging field focused on understanding the human health implications of our sort of vast transformation of all of our planet's natural systems. Our activities are transforming our planet's natural systems are coming back to impact our own health and well-being. Dr. Sam Myers is co-editor of the book Planetary Health, along with Frumkin, as well as principal research scientist at the Harvard University T.H. Chan School of Public Health and director of the Planetary Health Alliance. There's the scale of 
these disasters, all of which have human fingerprints all over them. And I think that we've reached sort of a unique moment in human history where the scale of our sort of collective activities globally has really exceeded our planet's capacity to absorb our wastes or provide the resources that we're using sustainably. And as a result, we're really transforming nature. And that's coming back to generate some very significant threats to our own health. And so this is a framework that really integrates our impacts on natural systems with those impacts on our own health and well-being. And fundamentally, you know, it's sort of evidence that the two fields of environmental science and thinking about conservation and biodiversity loss and climate change can really no longer be separated from the field of public health and thinking about the health and well-being of all the people on the planet because they're so intermeshed now. Most Americans have little idea about all the connections. We may be well aware of climate change, for example, but still have no clue about all the things in our lives that are affected. Rising concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere are actually making our food less nutritious. And when we've modeled how these changes in the amount of nutrients like iron and zinc and protein that are really, really important for global health, how changes in those nutrients might affect death of populations around the world, we find that between 150 and 200 million people are likely to be pushed into deficiencies of those nutrients just as a result of our addition of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. We're also doing work looking at how declines in pollinating insects are affecting human health. And we found that there are probably about half a million deaths a year just from not having enough pollinating insects to produce the crops that tend to protect us from things like heart disease and stroke. Even effects that are more obvious have far-reaching impacts that Myers and Frumkin say are likely only to get worse. We're really worried about climate change and rising sea levels and more extreme storms and the loss of coastal barrier systems like dunes and wetlands and coral reefs causing a lot of vulnerability for low-lying populations who may be forced to migrate. And increasingly, we're seeing trends where more and more people are being displaced. More and more people around the world are going to be living in places that are at least temporarily uninhabitable and are going to be forced to move into places where they may well not be welcome. And how much conflict is that going to generate? And how many health problems are going to be associated with all of those displaced people? We will see a lot more pressure on migration, just like the Dust Bowl, but an order of magnitude or more bigger than that. So we've seen in recent years migration from the Middle East and North Africa to Europe, and we've seen migration from Latin America to the U.S. When climate change desertifies, meaning it increases the intensity of desert land, lands in North Africa and the Middle East, when agriculture collapses, People do exactly what any of us would do. They look to go to a place where they can survive and take care of their families. Attempts to migrate have had political effects all over the world. For example, both the passage of Brexit in the U.K. and the promise to build a wall on our southern border were responses to an influx of immigrants. But Frumkin says migration within our country, much like the Dust Bowl days, are also likely in the next century in response to environmental changes. We'll see rise sea levels, 
and we'll see the intrusion of salt water into freshwater aquifers in coastal areas, meaning some coastal cities will become much tougher to live in. We'll see intense heat across the southwest and elsewhere, and we'll see water scarcity in a number of cities. So many cities will experience not just one, but two or even three of those challenges. And when they get intense enough, some of the population of those cities will have to decant and move. I think we're in for a lot of internal migration here in the U.S., as well as international migration from vulnerable parts of the world to more secure parts of the world. Within the U.S., Frumkin says he sees people moving away from sweltering or sea-threatened cities like Miami, New Orleans, and Phoenix, and moving to more temperate cities like Milwaukee, Boston, and Seattle. But there's a challenge in thinking about internal migration. There isn't a single city in this country that's ready to receive people in a short time frame. No city has surge capacity in terms of housing, transportation, jobs, schools. I think one of the challenges ahead of us is that the receiving cities need to start thinking very soon in their long-range planning about the possibility of substantial, rapid population growth. Even the COVID-19 pandemic, with all its mental and physical health fallout and dire economic consequences, can be seen as no surprise from a planetary health point of view. Myers and Frumkin say it's the predictable result of changes in how people, animals, and their habitats coexist. We've been warning for decades that the way we interact with wildlife populations is problematic and that you know more and more human incursions into wildlife habitat through agricultural extensification or logging and mining and extractive industries or bushmeat hunting for food or the wildlife trade all of those interactions with the wildlife create opportunities for new pathogens to come from animals and into human populations and in this case that's exactly what has happened and so you know these live animal markets in this case in china are the perfect place for pathogens from you know what was probably a bat pathogen to then move into another host most likely a pangolin, and then ultimately, as it muted, to jump into human beings and lead to this pandemic. So the origin of the pandemic has a lot to do with how we interact with the natural world. At the other extreme, in wealthy countries like ours, we have combined animal feed operations where hundreds of thousands of animals that are genetically similar are crammed into close quarters once again, a perfect opportunity for a virus to propagate itself and to jump from animals to humans. However, experts have discovered through the pandemic that people can impact nature in a powerful, positive way. We've seen, for example, this massive, global, very rapid collective behavior change, which is something that you know, really is going to be needed to address some of the planetary health challenges that we face, and we never knew whether it was even possible. And now we have very strong evidence that it certainly is possible for people to change the way they live, and they can do it on a very broad scale and very quickly. Another thing we've learned is that nature recovers. And so the fact that people are driving less and industries were slowed down, as horrible as that is from a livelihood standpoint, it's been interesting to see how fast nature has recovered. You know, air quality's improved, water quality's improved, animal moving back into 
to habitat. That's why Frumkin is optimistic, in spite of all the disasters in the natural world that increasingly affect us. Making a positive change is possible, and when we do it, the Earth recovers faster than we thought it would. So it's not a story of deprivation to make it happen, he says. It's a story of opportunity. If we reform our food system so that it's more sustainable, if we eat a little bit less meat, a little more plant products in our diets, we're healthier. If we re-envision our cities so that we can travel by foot and by bicycle and by transit a little less in single occupancy vehicle cars, then we're healthier. We breathe cleaner air. We're more physically active. We have less chance of dying in a car crash. Cities become quieter places. They're nicer to live in. So if we change our energy systems and move away from fossil fuels toward renewables like solar and wind, then the air is cleaner and we're healthier, lower risks of cardiovascular disease and cancer. It's easy to envision a world, a post-transformation world, where we're living within the boundaries that nature imposes and we're living happier, more fulfilling lives. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy to get there, but it means that we're not fighting an uphill battle against deprivation. We're moving toward actually a better world. Myers and Frumkin's book, Planetary Health, is available now. You can find out more about all of our guests on our website, RadioHealthJournal.org. I'm Reed Pence. Coming up, grieving for more than the obvious when Radio Health Journal continues. The American College of Physicians is celebrating National Internal Medicine Day on Wednesday, October 28th, and is proud to represent internal medicine specialists and subspecialists who make a difference in the lives of their patients every day. Internists are specialists in the diagnosis, treatment, and compassionate care of adults across the spectrum, from health to complex illness. ACP President and Internist Dr. Jacqueline Fincher. General internists are trained to diagnose complex medical problems such as hypertension or diabetes and manage acute illnesses. Some internists subspecialize in a related area such as cardiology. And in this time of COVID-19, internists are often on the front lines of public health emergencies to provide information, guidance, and care to help people stay well and out of the hospital. Internists are researchers, teachers, and administrators. They're even sometimes called the doctor's doctor, as they're often called upon to consult to other physicians and help solve puzzling issues. Find out more at acponline.org. Multiple sclerosis affects an estimated 1 million adults in the U.S. alone. In multiple sclerosis, the immune system mistakenly attacks the central nervous system, affecting a person's muscle control, balance, vision, sensation, and cognitive function. Though the exact causes are unknown, Epstein-Barr virus, a very common virus which causes mononucleosis, is the only risk factor identified to date that appears to be necessary for the development of MS. An investigational therapy called ATA-188 specifically recognizes Epstein-Barr virus-infected B-cells. It is currently being studied in a clinical trial, which is now seeking participants. If you or someone you know is living with progressive MS and is interested in participating in the ATA-188 clinical trial, please email patientadvocacy at atarabio.com to learn more and find a trial site in your area. That's patientadvocacy at atarabio.com. A message from Greenstone, a Pfizer company. 
Most of us know about generic medications, drugs that work in the same way and provide the same clinical benefit as brand-name medications, often at a lower price. Most generics are made by a different manufacturer than the original brand, but there is also a lesser-known category of generic medications called authorized generics that are made by the same manufacturer of the brand-name drug. Authorized generics, like all generics, meet FDA quality and manufacturing standards. Authorized generics are the same as the brand-name drug and only differ in that they do not have the brand-name on their labels and may have a different marking on the medication. In limited cases, they may have a different color. Authorized generics are not new. Greenstone has been supplying authorized generics for over 25 years. Talk to your pharmacist or visit GreenstoneGenerics.com to learn more and see if they manufacture an authorized generic version of the medication you take. Many women think about mammograms during Breast Cancer Awareness Month. However, despite decades of mammogram screening, breast cancer is still the second leading cause of cancer death in women. Screening mammograms miss about one in five breast cancers, especially in women with dense breasts, according to Beth Badalino, CEO of Healthy Women. Dense breasts consist of a lot of fibrous or glandular tissue and not much fat. Only a mammogram can determine if you have dense breasts. Research shows women with dense breasts can be twice as likely to develop breast cancer as compared to women with non-dense breasts. That's why leading health organizations now recommend certain women with dense breasts have supplemental imaging, such as a breast MRI, which can increase cancer detection. Ask your doctor if additional breast imaging may be right for you. Find out more at HealthyWomen.org. The content is sponsored by Bayer. And that's Radio Health Journal for this week. Radio Health Journal is a production of MediaTracks Communications. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to learn more. And check Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify for a library of past programs. Plus, you'll always find previous segments and information about our guests at RadioHealthJournal.org. Join us again next week for another edition of Radio Health Journal. Coming up next week on Radio Health Journal. We really, truly believe in the healing power of animals. They can heal your body and your soul at the same time. Therapy chickens and horses and llamas. How animals are making themselves at home in nursing homes. Then black lung disease, a relic of the past, right? Unfortunately, no. I've met so many guys with black lung disease, more than I can probably count. All that and more on Radio Health Journal.